to the Beer Healer Interviews. I am your host, Chris Lukinenko, and I scour this big brand land of ours, looking under fermenters and behind mash tuns to find the best beer stories to share with you. The Beer Healer Interviews is now available on all major podcast services. If you like the show and want to help out, can I ask you to simply rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast service. Just leave a few words and a rating and the podcast gods will do the rest. By doing this, you'll help others to discover the show more easily and hopefully get more people interested in this great industry that we call craft beer. In the world of craft beer, there are many amazing stories of unique and quirky breweries. But I feel like my guest today has something just a little bit more special than some of the others. When I sat down to write these intros, normally the words flow pretty easily, but for this one, I just kept rewriting it, and I wasn't sure of the best way to describe it and how I could really do it justice. I ended up giving up, and I decided I would let the experts describe it for themselves, so I stole this from their website. Jester King is a brewery, kitchen, farm, and event hall on a beautiful 165-acre ranch in the Texas Hill Country. They make food and drink uniquely tied to a time, place and people. They're a welcoming place for people of all ages to enjoy community, fun and hospitality in a very special setting. How's that? I think that describes them beautifully. But let's leave it there. To tell us more about the Jester King Brewery in Austin, Texas, welcome to the Beer Interviews, co-founder Jeff Stuffings. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate you having me on. Oh, mate, it's uh, fantastic to have you on. Uh, it's uh, the other end of the day for you and, and the morning for me. So uh, unfortunately, I, I can't partake in uh, sharing a beer with you, but uh, that's okay by me. Oh, yeah. And, and I, uh, I'm usually I'm better prepared. I don't have a beer in front of me right now. So we're in the same boat. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, you are a long way from my listeners, Jeff, but in the in the interest in uh, in your farmhouse in Austin, Texas, is uh, is very high for my listeners. I've got to say that's that's great to hear. Yeah, we're a small brewery, but we've managed to kind of have our name get out and about throughout the world uh, through various you know events and collaborations. So yeah, uh, yeah small brewery, but um, yeah, kind of people around the world may. Usually, if they're into beer, have heard of us. And I've got to give a shout out to my uh, friend from the podcast, Will Tatchell from Van Diemen Brewing, for for putting me onto you because. Uh, uh, it's fair to say that he loves you guys, <laughs> so uh, I, th- I thank him for that. Oh, from what I've read about you, there's a pretty cool story to tell you, so I reckon we get straight into it. And and you started Jester King with your brother, Michael. I just want to know, has beer always been a family affair for you, and did you maybe learn your, your trade from your dad? Um, beer has been you know around uh, in our family for, well, uh, since I was a small child, but uh, but not so much, you know, craft beer or, you know, small, you know, independent beer. Uh, you know, my dad just drank, uh, I think, uh, like PBR, PBR and uh, Warsteiner were his go-to beers. And uh, um, it wasn't until I got in, in college, uh, I was in the Midwest of the United States and was surrounded by breweries in the kind of Chicago area like Three Floyds and Founders uh, that I really kind of got into beer and graduated from drinking, um, you know, uh, you know, Bud Light and Natural Light to uh, to beers uh, that are much more flavorful and uh, and, and, and independent. Um, and then, uh, not not to get ahead of this kind of progression, but um, kind of the Eureka beer for me was um, was from a Jolly Pumpkin Brewery in in Michigan. Uh, that was the first ever uh, wild beer I had ever tried. Tried, which really kind of opened my eyes to the category. Yeah, you mentioned Founders there. They they are one of my favorite brews. They're, they're all day. IPA uh, is still one of my favorite beers I've ever had. I just love it. Just a, a great beer in a 
four and a half percent can. Just brilliant. So you so you're pretty interested in the um the whole wild ales like early on in your craft beer journey. It sounds like, but you were you're also working in a home brew store, so you're really um, you know, you're exposed to a, a lot of the different elements of, of this brewing, weren't you? Yeah, that was um, a really great experience. Like I had aspirations of opening a brewery, but, you know, along that journey, I uh, worked at, you know, my local homebrew shop uh, called Austin Homebrew Supply. And that was, um, you know, I love my job now, but, but you know, that job was at the time the best job I ever had. Um, just basically getting to help design recipes with people all day. Uh, I mean, yes, I'd work on, you know, process setups and, you know, rigs for home brewing. But, um, but I just loved, I've always loved recipe design. Like it's, I, you know, my, my hobby before getting into brewing was, was cooking and, and still is my hobby. And, just seeing how flavors work together and, you know, seeing, you know, when things go right, how it can kind of just unlock, uh, not just like sensory experiences, but even, you know, emotions, you know, so I just think that the power of, of, uh, the human palate and, 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 uh, creating with flavor and aroma is, is, is really special. And, um, yeah, brewing, brewing just, uh, appealed to me. Um, um, I don't know, getting to kind of, with, with, with cooking, I mean, you know, it's kind of like that immediate, uh, I guess it's both good and bad, that immediate satisfaction of, of, yeah. of cooking. But I, I've always liked, you know, fermentation where you get to kind of see the flavors develop and evolve over over time. So working in that homebrew store, was, was it someone that you met or was it a beer that you tried that made you think to yourself, I think I'm going to do this, you know, for real, go professional. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of had that in the, the, the back of my mind, um, or actually it was, it was something I was very much planning. Um, you know, when I started working at the, the homebrew store, working at the homebrew store was, was a cool avenue because it's the first time I got to meet other professional brewers, oh, yeah. um, you know, cause they were coming in. Um, I mean, sure. They might've been sourcing the bulk of their ingredients from, you know, larger suppliers, but you know, invariably they'd need like a, bag of crystal malt or some, you know, part or fitting that we may have had. So, um, it was cool for me at the time just to get to like rub elbows, talk shop with, you know, people making, you know, some of my favorite local beers and, you know, that, you know, very much, you know, helped in the, in terms of like, Hey, um, you know, you're, you're opening a brewery. Cool. Uh, you want to come by and, you know, shadow us for a brew. Um, so that was like the first chance I got to actually like through the people I met in the homebrew shop, like set foot in a professional brewery and see, you know, see how craft beer is, is made at a, at a production level. Were you hooked from the first time you walked into one of those breweries? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, um, you know, actually where I became kind of hooked was, uh, um, before I even started homebrewing, it was, uh, I think it was 1997 and uh, I have family in Colorado and I remember taking my first ever brewery tour at the uh, Avery Brewing Company oh, yeah. in Boulder, Colorado, yep. and just walking in there and just like the sights, the smells, everything about it just really was uh, enlivening, you know, to my mind and uh, and passions. And and um, it wasn't at that part that I you know thought about opening a brewery, but looking back, like that was kind of a formative moment of like the first time I ever set foot in a um, like a craft brewery, like I been to, you know, Budweiser, uh, in St. Louis, and I've been to Coors in Colorado and that was, you know, fine and cool. Uh, but those felt more like, you know, giant, you know, manufacturing plants, which, which they are, it was going to, to Avery brewing that really just like, was wow, this is cool and artisan and, and craft. I'm hearing you, mate. It's a, it's an amazing thing when you see, uh, the difference between 
the big setups and then, you know, all hands-on type brewing at, at the smaller brewery setups. It's, it's very easy to fall in love with. I, I, I totally agree with you. But the question I've got for you, so when, you, when you're going through all that sort of stuff and you're saying, I'm going to create a brewery, you go and visit these other ones, what made you want to go that extra mile and create a farmhouse brewery? Because it's probably one of the hardest types of breweries to get up and running really, isn't it? Yes. Um, I would say what uh, what made me want to open a farmhouse brewery was uh, first and foremost, you know, falling in love with the the style, that style. Uh, you know, I mentioned Jolly Pumpkin being a huge influence. I was um, living in Chicago at the time and I uh, discovered them and that a friend who was uh, going to school in, in Michigan. And, um, you know, he sent me a couple 750 milliliter bottles of, uh, of Jolly Pumpkin. I think it was their uh, Bam beer, uh, their farmhouse ale, and, uh, and then um, their Oro de Calabaza, their um, uh, barrel-aged uh, wild uh, strong golden ale. And um, yeah, I was just, you know, up until that point, I was drinking, you know, mainly a lot of like IPAs and porters and stouts. And I'd never had a beer that just presented like that with just the weird kind of funky aromatics and like just bone dryness with some like nice acidity. And I mean, it was kind of, you know, uh, you know, kind of felt like I was drinking wine a little bit when I, when I yeah. tried those beers and, um, and, uh, yeah, just, um, <clears throat> wanted to, to kind of pursue that professionally. I mean, fermentation, um, is, is amazing. Um, you know, pure culture, I think is a lot of fun. Um, to me, what's even more fun for my own, for my own taste is, uh, you know, wild fermentation where it's just so much more kind of variable and there's more, I don't know. I personally find it more more exciting in terms of like the flavors and aromas that are produced. Not that you can't have extremely exciting exciting beer with pure culture fermentation, um, but in terms of just like the character of the beer, I've always really been attracted to wild beer. And as I've gotten older, you know, same applies to you know the wine world too. As you know, the types of wines I like to drink typically are kind of low funky and tart and have some you know, very natural wild yeast characteristics. Um, but, um, but yeah, you know, so first and foremost, the love of the style. And then, you know, in 2007, uh, I moved to Texas and there weren't a lot of craft breweries, but there were some really good ones at the time. And they were making some German and Czech and English and American styles really, really well. Um, and just wanting to do something a little different. You know, I, I personally felt you know, calling to kind of add something to kind of the cultural landscape, you know, in a, in a small way to, you know, Austin, Texas, central Texas. And, you know, there was really nothing, um, you know, stylistically, uh, in, in Austin at the time. And, um, yeah, I just wanted to do something a little different that was in line with the beer that I loved. And then also, um, what kind of sealed the deal was finding a location that was out in the, what's called the Texas Hill Country um, it's, you know, there's actually, um, you know, some, I don't know, uh, maybe this is not entirely accurate, but like <laughs> traveling through Australia, you know, uh, two, approximately two years ago, like parts of it did kind of feel like the Texas Hill Country. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think, um, and you know what, that's not, maybe I'm uh, being a little, uh, going out on a wing, uh, a limb there too much because I, I, when I was, I didn't get the travel. I went to the, like the Yara Valley outside of Melbourne yep. and, um, uh, yeah, I did not get to Tassie. Unfortunately, our, our, our farmer, Pepe, uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. yeah, we, we, we certainly will be back. Um, but, um, 
yeah, um, nonetheless, like, you know, finding a rural location in the Texas Hill Country, just it kind of made everything just feel right as far as pursuing, you know, wild ales. Um, you know, I'll be the first to say that you can make really excellent wild beer in an urban environment. You know, I mean, you know, look no further than, you know, Brasserie Cantillon in Brussels, um, you know, arguably the best wild beer maker in the world that's, uh, you know, in an urban environment. So um, it's not essential, but I do think it, it lends, if nothing else, just a little bit more of like a mystique to the, to the, to the style by actually doing it in a farmhouse setting. Rate, review, and subscribe. Three words that struck a chord in every sensitive 44-year-old podcaster who dreams of telling stories of craft beer. And something that I talk about a lot, but it really can get this little potty into more ears and therefore grow craft beer for all of us to enjoy. So even if you listen elsewhere, if you've got an iPhone, you've got Apple Podcasts, and therefore you can help out the show. Those three words, rate, review, and subscribe. Oh, yeah, I did want to interrupt you uh, earlier when you're talking about, um, you know, how you were inspired by Jolly Pumpkin, but I can personally understand why you were inspired by those guys because uh, I enjoyed one of their farmhouse sales back when I was in New York a few years back. It was called the the Bambi Air. I might be pronouncing mm-hmm. it incorrectly, but that was just an amazing beer. I, I believe it was named after their do- uh, a Jack Russell dog or something along those lines. But uh, no, you're exactly right. I am. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. I'm not. I'm not always right on this thing. But um, it, uh, yeah, it was it was beautiful. It was sort of um, tart and spicy and hop, hoppy. Yeah, it was a, a beautiful beer. So if, if that that's the only beer I've had of theirs, but and I believe that's not even you know, in terms of you know their their breadth of what they they do with their brewing. You know, that's probably closer to an entry level beer for them than maybe some of the stuff that's inspired you. But I could totally understand why you would fall in love with what they do. Oh yeah, yeah. Bam beer is one of those desert island beers for me. Oh right, okay. Desert island beers, yeah. That's something I've never really discussed on uh, on the on the podcast with people's desert island beers. But uh, that's a that's an interesting one. I I would assume that that's not not on too many people's uh, list of desert island beers, being that's quite uh, <laughs> quite a quirky one. But but I love it that it's on yours. That's unreal. Um, you mentioned you know uh, in two thousand seven, you know. What about the financial side of things when you were getting everything started? You know, like, you know, on on paper, you sort of look at it and you think, well, the USA was in the grips of an IPA craze, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, you could actually, if you took took the, the love out of it and think about the financial risk of um, doing what you did, you're pivoting out of an IPA craze and into farmhouse ales. Was that a bit of a risk? And was did anybody tell you that maybe you were crazy to go in that direction? Yes, um, it, it was a you know a, a concern not really having um, you know focusing on you know I, IPAs um, back when we were um, you know getting um, off the ground and waiting for some of our barrels to mature. Like we we made a few IPAs just in the short term just to have something to uh, to serve to to visitors while a kind of our barrel program and mixed culture was developing. But once that was done, you know we just firmly, uh, committed to, to wild and spontaneous fermentation. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, so this was, you know, 2000, you know, eight, nine, that, that my brother and I were, were building the brewery and, um, yeah, Texas wasn't really, you know, at that point really known for having a strong beer culture. Um, we were something, you know, very new. However, you know, looking to other parts of the country where, 
Um, you know, there weren't a lot of breweries that had like real vibrant barrel programs, but, but there were enough that give us confidence that it could be done. You know, in addition to Jolly Pumpkin, you know, looking at like, for instance, like Allagash and Russian river were were big inspirations. And then, uh, you know, around the same time, some breweries like, like Crooked Stave and Hill Farmstead were just starting to make a commitment to these styles. And, you know, that gave us confidence, you know, looking around and seeing that we weren't, you know, alone in doing it. And then, you know, what also kind of gave us, well, I, I don't know, we, we figured that if, if the beers didn't sell in our backyard, then, you know, we figured we could always just, just send them to other parts of the country, like a little beer in a, in a lot of places. We had kind of seen that model before with some small yep. artisan producers. Um, we got linked up with um, the, the Shelton Brothers uh, importers. And um, yeah, just we kind of felt like a neat fit with their portfolio of brewers. And so kind of latching on to them kind of helped um, get our beer in some of the, in front of the right audiences in terms of people who would kind of like understand what we're up to. And then finally, like once we got going um, and started releasing some of our first, you know, wild ales and saisons and, um, you know, then ultimately spontaneously fermented beers, like the reaction was was better than I anticipated. Like there were enough people just in Texas, even to this day, you know, most of our beer is sold, you know, in Texas. Um, so that's always been a pleasant surprise is that the Texas beer market did choose to uh, support us. That's that's cool. I feel like you're a bit of a, I don't know, taking the pathless travel kind of guy because not only did you choose the farmhouse route, you also chose not to get your own brew kit delivered from a supplier. You and your brother actually made your own, didn't you? For the most part. So they, I mean, the, 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 the kit itself. Um, um, so, I mean, the, the, the stainless steel fabrication, uh, we did get from, um, uh, Newlands, uh, systems. However, um, just to save some cash, um, we just got, you know, just the vessels without any, you know, plumbing to the, to the kit really d- done. And, my, my brother is, he's my opposite. You know, I mentioned that, um, I love <laughs> recipe development and the creative aspects of brewing. Um, I am pretty helpless when, you know, a pump goes down or, you know, the glycol is leaking or, you know, there's some issue in the brewery. Yep. Um, Michael, uh, he fixes all that. Like when we were bootstrapping the brewery, he would just go to the local library and he would like, read books on like plumbing and electrical and uh, engineering. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. He was the kid growing up who would take apart the, you know, the microwave, the VCR, you know, we're dating myself right now with the VCR, but, but, you know, he would take, he would, you know, take those things apart and uh, would figure out how to put them back together. Like while I was, you know, watching, you know, basketball on television, you know, he would be, um, you know, building an observatory in the backyard and like taking pictures of deep space. Um, you know, he was a physics major. <laughs> I was a you know English uh, minor. So, I mean, we're just um, in some ways we're similar, but in terms of our you know backgrounds and skill sets, we are radically different. Which has actually made working together pretty easy. Like we kind of each have our area. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, we, uh, we did basically the whole install of the brewery ourselves, or I should say I was there to like, you know, be lend a hand, but Michael really did it himself. Yeah. I I love the fact that uh, you guys are a bit of a yin and yang that, uh, that seems like a perfect uh, working relationship to me. 
Yeah, Michael's, uh, it's been good. And then as you know, we've matured as a brewery and uh, introduced new things like farming and uh, a restaurant. Um, that's been another area where Michael's been able to kind of shine uh, more so in the, uh, in terms of uh, farming. Um, he's, uh, you know, never saw it really growing up, but, you know, uh, now that we're, uh, doing you know, our own agriculture, um, yeah, he, uh, he spends a lot of time, um, out in the fields. So let's talk about that for a bit. Your, your brewery's mantra is time, place, and people. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Um, you know, this kind of goes back a little bit to what I was mentioning about wild fermentation and just finding it so fascinating with just the different variables and uh, surprises that it lends. Um, you know, I think the essence of what a farmhouse ale is to me is something that is uniquely tied to those three variables. Um, you know, the influence of time and seasonality, whether it be, you know, the temperatures or the microflora that's vibrant in different times of the year, um, or the impact that, you know, just time simply has on, you know, the maturity of the beer as it goes through wild fermentation. Um, place being, you know, another major factor, um, you know, where you are in terms of, uh, the water, um, again, the microflora, the um, ingredients that we have, you know, in a uh, hundred mile radius around us in terms of, you know, malts and uh, fruit and vegetables, herbs, spices. Um, and then finally, um, all those variables are going to be manipulated by the people at the helm. I mean, I've said before, like you could take, um, you know, a different, you know, set of brewers, uh, and put them into our brewery and it's going to make very different beer, even though they're working with, you know, the same microflora and well water and, you know, local grains and then, you know, various adjunct ingredients. So what I think is just cool. And again, what I think kind of defines a farmhouse ale to me is something that's a unique product of those three inputs, you know, time, place, and, and people. And, you know, we live in a world where, you know, on a global and commoditized level, things are very, very uniform. I mean, yeah. at least in the United States, I can say that, you know, food is, you know, made to be, you know, very, very um, much the same, no matter where <laughs> in the country yeah. you are. And, um, you know, I, what I love and, you know, not so much this year, but, but you know, typically uh, getting to experience unique things that could only exist in certain places at certain times, like to me, that just makes them very special. And, you know, I mentioned kind of that, not just sensory, but kind of even like emotional connection to, um, you know, food and drink. Um, you know, I think that it's a lot more fulfilling and fun and memorable. Um, if those food and if that food and drink is tied to, the locale to the people to the time. Otherwise, it's just kind of you know one size fits all lowest time, common yeah. denominator type of thing. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's what kind of the time, place, and people means to, to I like us. It. I love it. Um, you, you talk to people involved in the art of you know brewing farmhouse ales, wild ferments, all those sorts of things, and they all tell you that there is a hell of a lot to learn to be successful as it at it. Was there someone that you turned to in, in your quest for knowledge on how to be, become great at it? Um, yes. Um, you know, some of those same breweries I mentioned that, um, you know, I discovered, you know, 
farmhouse ale from um, turned out to be, you know, universally just really wonderful people and very open with their information. Um, you know, just to name a few, you know, Ron Jeffries at Jolly Pumpkin and, you know, Vinny Salerzo at uh, Russian River, um, you know, John Benoit, Cantillon. These, these are all people who are just spectacular at what they do and, you know, very, very open and just generous with their, their time and information. Um, I mean, I, I've tried to pay that forward. Um, you know, for instance, I would ask, I remember, you know, for instance, like asking like Vinny Slurts at Russian River a question on, you know, bottle conditioning, wild beers and, you know, his approach. And, you know, within hours I got back, you know, just paragraphs of information on what they do at Russian River. How, and, how good is the craft you know, beer industry that you can, you can actually just reach out to these rock stars of brewing and they they just get back to you. It's unreal. It, it really is. It really is. And um, yeah, I, I've just always felt very, very uh, compelled to whenever anyone asks a question about, you know, hey, how could I do this better? Or how do you approach this? We just try to be an open, open book to them. Um, you know, one of the local winemakers around us, um, his name's Lewis Dixon at uh, Cruz of Comal. You know, he says with, uh, with his wine, you know, my secret is there is no secret. And, you know, that's how we try to be with uh, with, with, with wild beer. I mean, yes, yes, it is. Yes. These styles are hard to make. Um, yes, it takes a lot of just in, in our case, you know, despite having access to a ton of great information, a lot of mentors, um, really just trial and error, uh, ultimately was how we, we figured it out. Yep. Um, cause it's going to be a little different nowhere, no matter where you go. So, um, yeah. Um, I think once you kind of get over the hump on like seeing how different cultures create different flavors, how time and different temperatures and different fermentation vessels yield different flavors. And then once you kind of develop your palate to kind of be able to cipher through, you know, what is good and maybe what is not so good. I know that's subjective, but there are some off flavors that, you know, can be almost universally perceived as very negative. Um, so I think once you get through all that though, um, yeah, it does just come down to really patience and that, you know, that again, you know, our secret is there is no secret. Like I, I think, you know, so much of it is just like you, uh, creating an environment in which yeast can create interesting flavors and then just being very, very patient and also disciplined to discard what goes in a negative direction. I, I think in terms of, you know, blending and creating wild beers, um, it's more about what you didn't blend than what you you did blend. I've heard that before, actually, yeah. Well, let's talk a bit more about the beers. So you started out as a traditional farmhouse brewery, and were you just fermenting with a, a house-cultivated yeast at the start? Uh, yeah, that, that, that's right. Um, so... Um, Oh, oh, so right off, yeah, right off, you know, as we just opened for business, we, uh, yeah, we made a, um, an IPA and a, and a mild ale, um, and, uh, a stout, um, just to get a little bit of revenue coming in the door yeah. as we were working yep. on, uh, you know, developing our, our, our barrel program and, uh, you know, starting to make farmhouse sales. Um, once we got past that stage, um, we created a mixed culture, um, that we still use to this day. It's oh, about really? almost a decade old, oh, cool. old now. 
um, yeah, um, you know, we feed it periodically um, to keep it alive. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it's a combination of. A co- Sorry, can I stop you for a second? Yeah, sure. Can you explain how you you feed it to keep it alive? Because it's always always interested me. Like, you know, yeast is is a living organism, but. It's not like it's a dog that you go and put a, f- a bowl of food in front of. What What are you doing when you say that you feed it to keep it alive? Yeah, we'll just um, uh, take some, you know, low gravity, very, you know, lightly hopped or unhopped wort and just um, just feed it every you <laughs> know, couple it. of weeks just to make sure it's alive. And I mean, we're also, of course, propagating our mixed culture as we, you know, make beer and, you know, we'll harvest from one beer to, you know, use to make another, but we just keep a little bit of mixed culture on the side, just always going to to make sure it's just healthy and alive. I mean, you know, if, uh, you know, knock on wood, if, you know, the brewery, uh, you know, got hit by a tornado or something was gone, um, where I, what I would do is I would find a bottle uh, of Jester King and just culture, Culture the dregs uh, of the uh, of the bottle. Um, whenever someone wants to clone one of our beers, um, you know, I always give them the recipe, and I always say, you know, what you should do, you should just take um, the dregs from one of our bottles, feed it a little bit of starter wort, grow it up, and then pitch it into your your homebrew. Um, yeah, um, but um, uh, yeah, just um, the, the mixed culture, you know, how we created it was 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 quite fun and interesting. We took, we started off, um, uh, as the base, just a couple of, you know, pure cultures from some classic farmhouse breweries. Um, the strains, uh, the Saison strains that supposedly are from, uh, DuPont and, and, and Thierry in, uh, in Belgium and yep. France respectively. And then we, um, added some of the dregs from, uh, beers that had gone through our, our cool ship, um, so just, you know, microbes that ori- originated just from the air, uh, around the brewery. And then we would, um, do yeast capture experiments from just flora that's around the brewery. Um, you know, we've got a lot of like stuff like prickly pear, cactus and agarita berries. Um, you know, lemon bee balm just blooms every spring around Jester King. And, um, just, yeah, we would just simply take the, <clears throat> take the, the plants and uh, put them into a little, you know, 200 ml, uh, sorry, 2000 ml yeast, uh, starter. And just from there, it's, uh, all sensory. Yep. Um, we don't have a lab at Jester King. Everything is just done by our own palates as brewers and blenders. Old school. Yeah. Oh, very old school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's cool. Did at some stage there, did you just get bored with, you know, you've gone from just your farmhouse and you've got this mixed culture going on. And you said, I was going to go the next step. We'll just go with spontaneous fermentation. Is that sort of how it happened for you? It is. That's exactly how it played out. Um, you know, we started with, uh, you know, mixed culture fermentation, which, which took a lot of time to figure out how to do that effectively. And even to this day, I mean, we still have all types of, uh, you know, fermentations that, that you know, don't go well. Um, so it's never, you know, the battle's never won. It's just always uh, <laughs> ongoing. But, uh, um, you know, once we kind of got our confidence in, in mixed culture, it did feel like the next logical, you know, hurdle to climb, mountain to climb yep. was spontaneous fermentation. Um, you know, ever since I visited, um, you know, 
Cantillon. And, uh, I think that was 2012, um, for the first time, you know, I'd had their beer many times prior to actually visiting, but once I had visited there, um, I really wanted to see if it could be done in, in, in Texas. Um, cool. you know, there's a certain kind of level of like mysticism and magic about, you know, Brussels and the Zeta Valley. And, you know, I wanted to see like, I mean, sure, of course there's microorganisms all around the world, but, you know, once you get outside of that, you know, Lambic uh, region, you know, could you make spontaneously fermented beer and then have it taste good, uh, you know, an ocean away. And, um, you know, we, we kind of knew that, it was possible because we weren't the first in the United States to, to try it. Um, you know, Allagash, um, as far as I'm aware, uh, is le- at least in modern brewing history is the first uh, yep. brewery to, um, you know, do, you know, hundred percent spontaneously fermented beer, uh, using a cool ship and having it, you know, really turn out beautifully. Um, you know, they're in a Northern latitude, not too far from, uh, the same latitude as, as Brussels. Um, so our, our big question was, as you go much further South to Texas, you know, would spontaneous fermentation work in an environment that is really quite hot, uh, for most of the year? Um, we do get some temperatures, uh, near freezing, uh, especially this time of year, kind of December, January, February. Um, so chilling the wort, um, proved not to be a problem, uh, at least for this narrow window of cold weather we get in Texas. Um, our bigger, biggest thing would be, you know, would the microbes that uh, exist in the Texas winter be conducive to making good beer? And, um, thankfully in our experience, they, they absolutely are. I mean, while we get plenty of failed batches. Um, we get enough fermentations, spontaneous fermentations that are quite, quite pleasant to our palates. Um, our barrel room is temperature controlled. So, um, if we were trying to ferment, uh, these spontaneously fermented beers at ambient temperature in the Texas summer, I, I don't think we'd make very good beer. Um, so yeah, you know, doing it in our part of the world, um, I think temperature control is just yeah. absolutely essential. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's funny that you mentioned uh, Allagash because that was my last interview with uh, with Jeff, their marketing manager, just last last episode. So, uh, yeah, nice. Oh, very yeah. nice. Um, you know, the pointy end of the craft beer market, they understand the difference between the two methods of, you know, um, mixed culture versus spontaneous ferment, but many of them actually, many other drinkers would probably kind of lump them together. Do you feel like education has been – you know, a big part of what you do at Jester to let people know the difference? Oh, yes. Very, very much so. Um, you know, making styles that are, um, you know, less in the mainstream um, has required kind of constant education, um, you know, both in terms of, you know, writing about the beer and, you know, explaining our thought processes. Uh, you know, I know, you know, people's attention spans can be, can be quite short, but, you know, we've always just given people the benefit of the doubt that, that there are enough people out there that are willing to, you know, read, you know, 500 to a thousand words on, you know, why we're going about a process and why it's important and why it produces various flavors and then doesn't produce other flavors and aromas. Um, not so much these days, but under normal circumstances, um, brewery tours are something that um, I think is just a. I, I personally find it to be just the best 
method to educate people about our beer. You have a captive audience, you know, you're speaking to them face to face. Um, by and large, they're going to listen to the bulk of what you have to say. They're going to be able to not just hear your words, but also see what you're talking about, like right in front of them as we you know, take them through our barrel room and conditioning room and cool ship room um, to see just kind of how it's done. Um, so, I mean, you know, again, not now, but like right under normal circumstances, we, we would do, um, I think it was like seven brewery tours a weekend, um, which would be attended by on average, I would say about, you know, like 20 to 30 people. Um, so yeah, the brewery itself and the fact that thankfully people do come to visit it, um, <laughs> especially in larger numbers, uh, when it's say, you know, a nice sunny day in the spring or the fall, um, where we get like, again, a captive audience. So, um, yeah, being good communicators about beer, um, is key. Um, and then we've also invested in, um, storytelling through the visual arts. You know, we treat photography very seriously. We, um, we do, uh, you know, professional, not every day, but, you know, a couple times a year we'll have, you know, some professional videos made as well. Um, so I, and then also I think there's so many cool visuals when it comes to making farmhouse ale. I mean, we work with barrels and fruit and cool ships and, um, you know, we're on a farm. So, um, there's a lot of cool, um, kind of, you know, eye candy, if you will, as part of the process. (laughs) And so, yeah. Um, yeah, it, 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 but it's huge. You mentioned your cool ships there. We've talked about them a couple of times here. I'm just wondering, are yours as cool as, um, well, pardon the pun, are yours as, as beautiful as what Topher from Wildflower out here has created? Have you seen photos of his uh, cool ships? They're beautiful. I, I have. How, how beautiful I have, are they? Yeah. Are yours that good? Absolutely, yeah. What, yeah, what Topher has created there, um, the Wildflower is very, very impressive and I was uh, lucky enough to to visit him uh, about two years ago. Uh, we did a collaboration at his brewery in um, in Merrickville there, and uh, um, and then I also uh, went to uh, Melbourne to uh, to visit uh, Costa at uh, La Serene and uh, did a collaboration with him as well. So that was a pretty special trip. Um, but um, yeah, our cool ship uh, was inspired, of course, by the one at, at, at Cantillon, yep. our, our biggest, you know, sp- uh, spontaneous brewery inspiration. Um, theirs is, a, you know, beautiful, just, uh, you know, uh, it's not, there's not a single weld. It's all just, <laughs> you know, hammered copper. Yeah. Uh, ours is welded together. So it's not quite as beautiful yep. as, as Cantillon's, but, uh, but definitely inspired by that. Theirs with the copper finish. Yeah. Nice. Nice. You know what I love um, with all, all this talk of, you know, the, the wild owls and that sort of thing. I love how, you can get this variation that comes into the equation when you're talking about this spontaneous ferment side of things, you know, things like a rainstorm, a heat wave or, or high winds can change a beer. That absolutely fascinates me. Does, does that get your juices flowing? Yes. I mean, thinking about something that can only exist, going back to that, you know, time, place and people intersection, yep. you're making a beer that is only going to exist once yes. you know, at a specific place and time, you know, under the direction of a certain set of people that is never, ever going to exist again. And, you know, well, some you know blends uh, may have a lot of similarities to other blends, like just knowing that, that what you created is going to be this singular experience in, in, in beer. Um, you know, for better or worse, I think that's that's pretty 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 cool. Yeah, it's awesome. It, but do you feel like it's something that only a trained palate can detect, 
or can the everyday man taste the differences, you know, between those those events and stuff like that? I think side by side, yes. yes. Yeah, the the everyday beer drinker can absolutely discern uh difference between, you know, various years and blends and uh even individual batches. Um yeah, I think um it side by side is key because I th- I think that uh even, you know, even I, you know, am around it all the time, but like trying to think, oh, what was that batch like? What was that batch like? It becomes yeah. It becomes yep. difficult to sometimes yep. pick them apart, uh, and then also it's it's you know the, 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 with it being a moving target because like you'll be we will be comparing like our one of our 2017 blends to one of our 2019 blends, and you know it's so hard because that 2019 blend is going to change a lot by the time you know it's as old as the 2017 blend. Um, so yeah, it's just kind of constant movement forwards and backwards through time that can be hard to really pin down, which is part of the fun, but also kind of part of the difficulty and, you know, kind of, you know, deciphering, uh, you know, changes and potentially what caused them. Yeah. That's the bit that I struggle with because my, my memory is terrible. I half the time can't remember what I did last week. I don't know what my wife's birthday is. I don't even know what my kids' names are half the time. So trying to remember a beer now versus what I've drunk before, I really struggle with that. Um, so you also love throwing a bit of fruit into your beers, don't you? And you've got your own trees for that, I believe, on the property. What's your favorite fruit to work with? Um, my favorite fruit to work with um – Probably peaches. That's, that's um, pretty common. I've, I've found peaches. Yeah, um, they grow really well in Central Texas. Um, you know, I obviously you know would never make any kind of wild claim like, oh, the the, the grapes that are grown here in Central Texas are the best in the world. Like, I, I, you know, that 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 would be very very bold and probably you know certainly not not correct. Um, and granted, I, you know, I'm not familiar with, with peaches worldwide, so I'm probably being a little bit of a, you know, engaging a little bit of like Homerism here, yep. but, uh, I just, I just think Texas peaches are just absolutely sensational and, um, love working with them. Um, we've had, you know, very good luck with them historically. Like we've only had like really one year where the harvest was really, really paltry. Um, and so, yeah, I just think the flavors and the aromas that are produced by them are just truly outstanding. Um, and then probably if I had to pick a second and, and, and this, we're not actually there yet. We have planted a a vineyard at Jester King that is about, uh, two years old and probably has at least two to three more years of maturation before it's ready. But, you know, grapes would be, you know, my second favorite fruit to work with. Um, you know, I've, quickly kind of latched on, although I still consider myself very much a, a wine novice. Like I, I don't know regions very well. I don't know, uh, you know, varietals, uh, very well, but, um, but just, you know, simply making wine is something that I've really tried to learn more about. And, um, early on just getting to taste some of the wines that were say spontaneously fermented, uh, that, you know, were packaged without any, you know, sulfites, uh, not that there's anything wrong with, with sulfites. I, I don't want to make that, you know, <laughs> a hard line here in the sand, but, but nonetheless, tasting wines that were very much alive and, and ever changing, um, from some of our local producers, you know, for instance, like the one I mentioned, uh, earlier, La Cruz de Kamal, I just saw the parallels to wild beer so vibrantly, like for instance, there's a, a wine that a producer makes uh, called um, uh, La Roja that if you did it, if you tasted it blind, a beer drinker might say, oh, that's a nice Flanders red. I mean, it's, it's, it's just kind of uncanny 
um, some of the overlaps and, you know, along those lines, like some of our best friends in our you know community are winemakers. We sometimes feel more camaraderie with our local winemakers and our local brewers just because of the, the similarities in yep. our process. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, to kind of get back to your question, like, what am I, what do I like the most? What am I most intrigued by? Certainly peaches, but, but nowadays, especially since we're you know, actively pursuing our own vineyard, um, you know, learning how to work with, with grapes. Well, just a King winery launching soon. <laughs> Sounds unreal. <laughs> we're still learning, but, uh, but I think sometime in the next few years, um, you know, you will see some of our wine, both, both, um, hopefully what we grow on site, but then also, um, we're certainly not opposed to sourcing fruit from, you know, from around our area. Um, we, we do a lot of kind of wine beer, what I'd call wine beer hybrids, um, which are either, you know, re-fermentations or co-fermentations of grapes. Um, and those are some of my favorite beers we, we make. Because they're nothing you cannot do. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, so maybe if mixed ferment, plans for wine, spontaneous ferments, and, and a, a few more traditional brewers weren't enough, you also barrel age, which brings in the art of blending beer. Again, something that really fascinates me. What, have you got rules that you live by in terms of how you blend your beers? Yes, um, and you know, I when I talk about this, I, I kind of uh, you know, I, I, I would love to you know kind of tell the story of kind of like these like whimsical moments of you know uh, you create these like various barrel blends and it just like magnifies or multiplies the characteristics, and um, we do see that from time to time where you know, we create a blend and it's just like, wow, that's so much greater than some of the parts. Um, more often than not, and this goes back a little bit to what I said earlier, like so much of it to me, is just like culling out the bad. Um, cause there's plenty, plenty of bad. And, 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 you know, it is kind of sad. Uh, you know, we will fill, uh, I don't know, a hundred barrels over the course of a, of a winter cool ship season. And we can just pretty much from experience assume that, you know, 40 of them aren't going to be very good. Um, and so that's in, and scientifically, uh, you know, going, going back to what I was talking about with the divide between my brother and I, in terms of our skill sets, um, my science is very, very weak. You know, again, we don't have a laboratory, <laughs> Everything's done sensory wise. Yeah. It's so much trial and error um, that, you know, when there's these barrels that, um, you know, have these various off flavors, um, I typically don't know exactly why, at least on a scientific level. Like the only one that I can kind of practically wrap my mind around is um, uh, acetobacter and, uh, you know, acetic acid or kind of like harsh like vinegary flavors, um, you know, which uh, from what I've you know learned over the years is very much driven uh, by, you know, the temperature at which the beer uh, ferments. Um, like I mentioned, we, we have, a, have a barrel room that's kept quite cool. We keep it about kind of cellar temperature, uh, you know, around the 55 mark uh, Fahrenheit uh, year round. And um, yeah, so, I mean, it's, it's, Again, just kind of like taking the flavors that might be like, again, you know, vinegary, which which I personally hate, um, you know, kind of funky, but not in a good way or God forbid, you know, like butyric, which is like the worst off flavor under the sun for me, which, you know, just smells like, you know, a trash can. I mean, like, so, so it's, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of kind of like unsexiness as well in making these beers where you get some experiments that have really kind of gone off the rails. Um, 
but usually um you know the beer kind of tells you when it's ready and and kind of I mean, yes, we're companions uh, and, and, and yes, there's an art to it, but so much of it is just an exercise in patience, patience for the yeah. waiting for the beer to say, you know, hey, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready now. Oh, I've heard that. That's that's why I think I would be pretty crap at doing what you do because I do not have patience. <laughs> yeah, no, that, 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 that's tough. I mean, uh, I mean, just for the, the, the beginning was the hardest because, you know, we would do something and we knew we had to wait a year. Where now we've been doing that time and time and time again, where like every month there's a couple new things that like are mature. Um, you know, I always I always uh, uh, take you know joy in the fact that I'm not a distiller because that just seems like just patience <laughs> on a whole other yeah, level. Absolutely. <laughs> hey, you look at the site map on your website; it's awesome, and and every part of the farm has a food mole value attached to it. You're obviously very um, very proud of how hyper-local your beers are, but I'm just wondering, what is a typical food mile value for one of your finished beers? Oh, gosh. I've never um, actually done a, a, a calculation, but uh, I would say uh, I, mean, I would say 50 miles is the most we'll, we'll source anything for our, our kitchen. Um, you know, we're, we're highly seasonal. Um, yeah, I mean, we're the only um, where we have a bakery and a, a, a pizzeria, and the only one, to my knowledge, that's using exclusively Texas-grown grain for all of our our dough. Um, you know, brewing. Uh, whereas our, our restaurant, um, I can't think of anything that uh, we're sourcing again beyond like a fifty-mile radius. Uh, you know, brewing. We're, we we are not opposed to. Um, sourcing ingredients from from out of state if if we're excited about something like uh for instance um you know we're talking about favorite fruits uh cherries are on my short list as well and um you know we don't have a cherry harvest here in in central texas we've got one in tessie that's wonderful um i'm jealous um you know and some of my my favorite cherries I've ever tried are um, you know from a winery uh, called Frederikstall, um, which is uh, outside of Copenhagen, Denmark. Oh, yeah. And um, you know, ever since I had their cherry wine, you know, I really really wanted to work with with you know their cherries in, in, a, in a collaborative way. And, and on a side note, that's one of the things I love about collaborations is it's a chance to kind of get outside of your yeah. comfort zone a little bit and you know, try, uh, ingredients that are maybe from another part of the world or techniques that you wouldn't do yourself, yep. but you know, so, um, yeah. So I guess, you know, again, on the beer side, you know, we, we haven't been shy about, uh, you know, using ingredients from further abroad with, with still the bulk of what we do being sourced locally. Yeah. Now, look, as with most breweries, COVID has forced you to change a few things about how you, you run your business. But I feel like you've kind of turned a real negative into a bit of a positive, haven't you? Yes, um, I think our our setup that we've we've ad- adopted um, has been been good for uh, for this this time period. Um, we we do have, you know, we're lucky that we're on a ranch and a farm and have uh, a lot of space. Uh, we're also lucky that you know even in the winter time here, you still have days that are quite pleasant to be outside. Um, you know, I'm definitely feeling right now for brewers up north who uh, either have you know capacity restrictions or uh, are not allowed to do any indoor seating, and also are in an environment where it's you know highs near freezing. Yeah. Um, that makes it very hard to to operate. And you know, I'm 
hoping, hoping, hoping that that 2021 starts to turn things uh, around and allows people to get back to you know operating at full capacity. Um, so what we did was, um, you know, basically um, took inspiration from. Um, well, kind of like a, a, a theme park, which sounds <laughs> cheesy, but, but, but it's true. Um, yeah, I mean, we we have these like various areas around Jester King. You know, we have, you know, a, a goat pen and uh, a vineyard and a, and a hop yard and just various other areas around the ranch that are very kind of scenic. And these are places that I've, you know, as I've had brewers come and visit and tour with us um, that I've you know shown them and we've hung out and drank beer in these various spots. And, you know, it was just kind of like, well, if people can't be huddled in our like beer hall inside of this, this uh, pole barn that we have uh, where we pack people in, you know, really close and it would look like, you know, kind of like an Oktoberfest type of, of beer yeah. hall. Yeah. Um, you know, so that, that became, you know, uh, uh, you know, unacceptable, uh, this year. So, um, what we did alternatively was like just spread people out to these various little lands around, um, the brewery or on the, on, on the ranch and then connected them with, um, with a farm trail. So, you know, it's, it's not as like convenient as it was, but, but I really love how it's, um, you know, I, I think arguably more, more charming where, you know, you, uh, get a beer and go on a walk or, you know, you, uh, uh, and everything's electronic these days. So you, you order a beer on your cell phone and then you like walk through our vineyard to go pick up uh, a beer and then take a beer back to your, 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 your table. So it's kind of almost extreme social distancing yeah. where, you know, people are spread out across, you know, like a 300 yard area. It's unreal. It's, and it sort of, um, you know, ties in nicely to another of your driving principles at the brewery, which is that of, you know, appreciating and preserving the land, I suppose. Yes. Um, that's, that's something that's very important to us is to be good stewards of our, our land. Um, we feel very fortunate that, you know, we do have a, a relatively large, uh, size of, of, of land to, to preserve, um, you know, the area around Austin is growing extremely fast. Um, um, and, you know, space, green space around us is becoming certainly less frequent than it was when we started 10 years ago. Um, so, you know, I'm firmly middle-aged now. So it's, you know, I'd be lying if I didn't, you know, think about things like, you know, what's our legacy. Yeah. And, um, you know, if we could, essentially have preserved um, a relatively large swath of land on the outskirts of Austin, then that would be, I'd be pretty proud if that was a, a big that's part nice. of our legacy. Yeah, that's nice. Feels like a, a nice way to uh, wrap up the interview today. Um, I've probably taken up enough of your time, but I'm just uh, wondering, you know, the next 12 months, I mean, obviously that's your legacy that you're talking about there, but you know, the next 12 months, uh, what are the plans hold for, uh, for Jester King? Well, Chris, I think, um, uh, my mind always goes to just the fermentation projects we're we're working on. Um, that's what kind of keeps me excited. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, um, we'll get to, for instance, like, you know, some of the great projects that we did, uh, last summer are now starting to, you know, near maturity, you know, as we get into kind of, you know, this coming spring. And so, you know, blending those is, is, is exciting. Um, we're actually lucky in that, um, the law changed where we can actually now, you know, make beer and wine and mead and cider under the same roof. So, um, you know, just again, experimenting with different fermentables, um, is exciting. Um, and then, 
you know, I know this is you know, true of everyone, but seeing kind of hopefully a return to you know relative normalcy in, in the beer world. Um, I mean, I can tell you, I know there's, you know, far greater uh, problems that people yeah. are experiencing right now than this, but, you know, I'll be excited when, you know, we can start putting beer in like kegs again. I and mean, we still do it a little bit, but like almost everything is going into bottles and cans now just because, um, yeah, well, people are just buying, well, bars aren't open. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that'll be, that'll be nice to see, you know, hopefully the return of draft beer. Yeah. I actually was at the pub down here in Hobart last night, a place called the Winston, uh, beautiful pub and drinking um, beer off the tap is, is something that I, I do love. And it's something that maybe that I've taken for granted a little bit in the fact that Tasmania, because we're a small island with a moat, we've probably been largely unaffected, I would say, by this COVID thing. Um, So being able to go to the pub and drink a beer off the tap, uh, I love it. I love it. But I know there's a lot of people in a lot of parts of the world that that just cannot be done right now. Yes, and unfortunately, um, yeah, we were putting about like half our beer in kegs uh, prior to COVID, and now it's like less than 10%. Uh, well, hopefully there are brighter times ahead. I'm sure in terms of uh, the trajectory that Jester King is on that you've got some some amazing things to to experience in, in the coming years because from what I've heard, uh, you are just producing the most amazing uh, beers in, in your field. So I appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you for making it for me um, because I th- believe that my listeners will really love hearing about the story of Jester King. So thanks for your time, Jeff. Absolutely, Chris. And uh, just to end on a positive note, I, I, I know I was talking about some of the negatives, but uh, – one thing that I think will be awesome to return hopefully next year um, is kind of, you know, beer community in terms of, you know, events and festivals and collaborations. I mean, it's been such a weird year with, um, you know, like basically no beer festivals. Yeah. And so, you know, beer is such a communal beverage to me. It's the ultimate communal beverage. And so, you know, seeing beer kind of create community all around the world again um, with people traveling and then and, and collaborating and experiencing, you know, just the fun of, of beer and, and, and socializing, you know, that'll be cool to, to hopefully see uh, start to come back. Here, here. Here's the beer festivals. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for your time today, mate. Cheers. All right. Cheers, Chris. Nice talking to you. Thanks for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. If you have an interesting beer story and want to be a guest on the Beer Healer interviews, send me a message via my Facebook page. And once again, if you want to help out the show, a simple rate and review on Apple Podcasts or a follow, like or share on any other podcast service will do the trick. I'll catch you soon.